had all these papers to sort out. Um, it's easy, hopefully not here, but we tend to make it easy for church to be a product for you to consume. So all I have to do, my job is to show up, sit in the stands, and judge the product that gets produced on stage. Maybe join in, maybe cheer a little, but the professionals up there do the work. I just consume the product they produce. Now, I hope we don't make that easy, but that certainly is the temptation. But what if it was true that the experience of God as we gather matters as much what you do as what we do? What if it maybe even matters more what you do than what we do? What if your worship life has a strong determination on the experience of God among his people when we gather? What if your seeking of God privately has a strong determination of what happens here publicly? What if your set of relationships and their health or their brokenness has a strong determination on our group encounter with God as we gather? I think that's something Paul's going to point on as he closes out the book of 2 Corinthians. Our shared pursuit of God has a strong determination on our shared experience of God. And so we're winding down 2 Corinthians, as we've said, kind of the big headline theme. Christ is a supreme and worthy treasure. Even if following Christ invites slander into your life and means slander in your life, and even if following Christ means suffering as a part of your life, he's worth it. He is a supreme and worthy treasure. I've printed in, I think, on the back of your, your insert... These are the themes we kicked off 2 Corinthians with. And now that we're wrapping up 2 Corinthians, I want to just go through them again very, very briefly so that you can see or hopefully see that 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 is the journey we've been on. Each of these key points has been woven through the book. And so the first one, it's about God and not us. The gospel treasure lives in frail vessels. The great problem of, of the church in 2 Corinthians is there's a huge spotlight in the church. But it was their leaders and their pastors that got the spotlight, not God. And Paul wants to reverse that. The spotlight belongs on God, always on God, only on God. And so it's about God, it's not about us. And the more we are frail vessels, the more we show off the beauty of the gospel treasure. Uh, The second thing, it's about heart, not appearance. So there's two ways of evaluating people. What do they do on stage? What do they do in public? What do they do behind a teaching podium? What do we see about them? The appearance. How do they look? How do they talk? How do they act? Now that's important, right? You, you, want, you want that to say something right. But what if it says something that's completely opposite of what their heart and their life really are? And that's what Paul wants people to look at. I want you to look past the show, past the lights, past the product. And I want you to look at the hearts and the lives, day in, day out, routine, ordinary lives of the people you're following. Is there any integrity there? Is there any genuineness there? Is there any deep abiding love for Jesus and following of Jesus there? Or is it all a show? It's about heart. It's about who we really are at the core of our being, not about the appearance, the image we can put out in front of other people. 
It's about a cross-bearing Savior. Suffering and slander may be signs of gospel approval, not displeasure. See, they wanted to make a charge against Paul. You suffer too much. And Paul's like, yes, because it identifies me with my Savior who is humiliated and brutalized and thrown on the most despicable, despised death means available to be publicly shamed before the world. And so I feel like I'm in pretty good company if this gospel means that is what I look like. And so it's tempting to think, okay, things aren't going well. Suffering happens. Slander happens. Must be something wrong with this person. And it may be. But it also may be that that is exactly a sign of of gospel commendation. That we've been counted worthy to suffer for his name. And then the last one, it's about gospel comfort. We have a a God who comforts and then sends us to comfort others. And if you're someone who's been slandered and have found the comfort of God sufficient, and if you're someone who has been afflicted, despairing of life itself, and have found comfort, then you can offer to people who are despairing of life. You can offer to people who have been slandered. You can offer to people who have been hurt deeply a comfort that will hold no matter what they face. It's about a gospel comfort that holds in the real circumstances of the real world. And so hopefully you've seen those woven through. Those aren't like new concepts. Those are things that if you followed this journey with us through 2 Corinthians, about 33 weeks long now, 32 weeks long now, those will have been themes that definitely resonate because you saw them through the book. Well, Paul's closing out today. And the way Paul generally closes a book is just like this, or he's, you know, this is certainly a normal way. Here's a rapid fire set of commands. One, two, three, four, five. Here's some kind of final greetings. And then here's this closing. And what Paul will do is one way or the other is he'll usually close with a doxology, a big word that means a statement of glory to God, a statement of praise to God. Or he'll close with what he does here, a blessing. We call it a benediction. But a statement of blessing on people. And that's how he closes out this book, is a blessing on the people. The connection, though, he makes is this. There's a connection between you, normal, ordinary Christians, me, normal, ordinary Christians, Living out the will of God by the grace of the gospel, applying the commands of the gospel. There is a connection between that and our experience of God together and our experience of God individually. Our shared pursuit of God impacts our experience of God. Let's read and then we'll pray. So verse 11, chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, Grant us to rejoice. Not rejoice because our retirement went up. Not rejoice because everything's going well with our family right now. Not rejoice because of health. But to rejoice in the Lord. To find our highest and greatest and most exciting joy. 
to be the joy of being yours, being your child, knowing you, knowing who you are. Father, do a work in our hearts. Rescue us from joylessness. Rescue us from routine. Rescue us from distraction. Rescue us from a lukewarm faith. Rescue us to rejoice and rescue us to live at peace with each other. Rescue us to love each other and weave our lives together. Rescue us to encounter the fullness and richness of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Rescue us to know what is unknowable, the heights and the depths and the width of the love of Christ for us. To know the intimacy of fellowship with you and others. God, rescue us for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our shared pursuit impacts our experience of God. The first step, pursue joy in God and unity that we all might experience more of Him. Pursue joy in God and unity that we all might experience more of Him. Uh, Many of y'all probably know, um, I met Amy while we worked at a restaurant. It's known now as Panera Bread. And if you don't know this, she was my boss. Right? I dated the boss. All right, so we worked in a restaurant, and one of the things the restaurant would do pretty regularly as a way of evaluating us is they would send in secret shoppers. All right, so the secret shopper would get their meal paid for and get a little bit of money from the company uh, to come and to pretend like they were just a normal customer and evaluate the experience of the customers. And so they would come in and they would evaluate by criteria like, how long did we have to wait in line? How long did we have to wait for our food? How friendly was the cashier? What was the quality of the food like? What was the, was the environment clean? Were the tables bust? You know, like all these different sets of criteria. And they would come back and we would get a, just a, a report a couple of days after they came, wouldn't know who they were. Uh, we'd get a report and here's some things you're doing well. Here's some things that went really well. And, you know, if there was the bad stuff, that's what, of course, they highlighted and put a magnifying glass on and talked to us as managers about and like, okay, here's what you need to fix. But what was the goal? It was, what is the experience of the restaurant like for our customers? Well, what if we asked the Holy Spirit to be the secret shopper of our experience with God individually and the secret shopper of our experience with God corporately? I don't mean the secret shopper of how good a show got put on. I mean the secret shopper of how genuinely was God encountered in our lives and how genuinely was God encountered as we gathered. What criteria might the Holy Spirit look at? Right? And so I think there's some obvious ones, right? The Holy Spirit would certainly look at, okay, are you, are you spending some time in the Word? And I mean really, not just reading words on a page, but are you, are you encountering God? Are you, are you learning about God? Are you, are you meaningfully engaging with God in the Word? Right? Probably look at your prayer life and, you know, is there a prayer life there? And is there a sense of communion in that prayer life and intimacy in that prayer life? Are there any big glaring areas of sin? I, I, we'd all, yeah, surely the Holy Spirit's looking at that. But I think from this text, there might be a couple of surprising Criteria. Maybe they're not surprising, but they might be. What if the Holy Spirit secret shopped your heart to check for your joy? Where do you find your joy? What drives your joy? What motivates your heart? What excites and thrills your soul? What would the Holy Spirit find there? What's your highest joy? Would he find green pieces of paper there? 
I rejoice in green pieces of paper when I have plenty and I despair when I don't have enough. Would the Holy Spirit find your kids or your spouse there? My highest driving joy as a person. Would he look and it be a retirement account? Would he look and it be a job? Would he look and it be a promotion? Would he look and it be a degree? Would he look and it be a career field? What would he find there? Or when the Holy Spirit secret chopped your heart, would he find there's the seeds of joy in God that sustain? Because that's one of the things the Holy Spirit is looking for is the criteria of our experience with him and our shared experience with him. And then I think there's another one in the text he would look at. What's your relationship life like? Are there broken relationships that need mending? Are there strained relationships that need to be restored? Have you chosen to be on the fringe of community with other believers? On the fringe, I'll kind of pop into church and I'll pop out of church. I won't really engage in any groups. I won't really engage in any relationships. I'll just stay way out here. And you will find your experience with God stays way out there too. Not perfectly so, but some. If you choose to stay on the fringes, then you'll find your encounters with God are fringe encounters. In part. But as you walk in into relationships, it will affect your encounters and experience of God. But here's the other thing. It will also affect ours. So part of our experience with God is what you choose to do individually in the area of relationships. Mending what is broken or driving in when it would be easier to stay out. So let's look at it. Pursue joy in God and unity that we all might experience more of him. Finally, brothers, that means people who are in Christ, family of God, brothers together under the the fatherhood of God and sisters uh, um, under the fatherhood of God, rejoice. Primary command. Like when he wraps up his letter about division and he wraps up his letter about slander and he wraps up his letter about accusations and he wraps up his letter about a church that is factioned from each other and he wraps up his letter that talks about, you know, uh, the pursuing of leaders who are flashy versus leaders who are faithful. He wraps up the letter with a primary command. Rejoice. Rejoice. It is a command. But we don't want to treat it as a command, do we? It is commanded of you to rejoice in your God. It's the command that is the essential command. If your faith is sluggish, it is sluggish not because you need to do better. It is sluggish because you need to renew your joy in God. When you're drifting from God, you don't need to commit to better disciplines. Helpful. When you drift from God, you need to reset your joy in God. When you find that there is no desire for Christ, you need to reset your joy in Christ. When you find you're captured in any sin, it is not going to break the chains for you to work better, willpower, do harder stuff. It is going to only break free when you find a fresh joy in the gospel. That's why David cries out in Psalm 51, uh, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sin has stolen joy. Joy is the only thing that conquers sin. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's his prayer. How can I be restored back to the Lord if he restores joy to my life? How can I be restored to the Lord if I'll experience the joy of salvation again? How can I be restored to the Lord when he has broken me graciously because he won't let me have the sin that kills me? Because he'll only give me himself that's life? 
He resets bones of joy. And you think, okay, maybe. Joy in God is not optional, and joy in God is not a rare term in the Bible. It is hundreds and hundreds of time commanded. Hundreds and hundreds of time exhorted. Hundreds and hundreds of times encouraged among God's people. In fact, the book starts that way. You can mark it down. Chapter 1, verse 24. We don't want to lord it over your faith, he says. But we work with you for your joy. Why was 2 Corinthians written? To confront and correct? No. 2 Corinthians was written as a labor of Paul to restore them to the joy of their salvation that they have abandoned for the flash and thrill of a show. Is it your prayer to work together with each other? To help each other for the joy of their faith? Philippians 4.4, 4, a famous passage on this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And for you knuckleheads like Chris that are hard-headed and didn't get it the first time, again, second time, repeated, I'll say it. Rejoice. Those are command words written in the command tense. These are not optional. I think it would be good. I think it would be helpful if you would rejoice in the Lord. It is commanded of you as a believer to rejoice. It is commanded of you to seek the face of God in whose presence is the fullness of joy. Deuteronomy 28 actually condemns them for their lack of joy. Deuteronomy, let me get the text right, 28, 47, and 48. Because you did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, you will serve your enemies, lacking everything. He's judging them for their lack of joy in serving him. I'm reading through the Psalms in preparation for November. Got behind on October's reading, so reset and went to to the Psalms. Let me just read a few of the ones, just so you don't think this is off the wall. Dozens of times in the Psalms, you'll hear things like this. Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Psalm 914, that I may recount your praises, I may rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 13.5, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 16.9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Psalm 32.11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 40.16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Psalm 64.10, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. Psalm 97.12, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to him. Why are y'all so quiet? Like I'm reading, shout for joy. And you're like, oh, that's great. Okay. I'll let you deal with that before the Lord. You guys can do it. But this isn't, this isn't random examples. Dozens of times in the Psalms, hundreds of times in the scriptures, Paul's closing command is the command of the believer. Rejoice in the Lord. Recount the praises of the Lord. Recount the, the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. Recount the salvation of the Lord that your heart may rejoice in the Lord. Joy alone will conquer your sin. Joy alone will set you free from your lusts. Joy alone will set you free from your critical spirit. Joy alone will set you free from your anger. Joy alone will set you free from whatever it is that is strongholded over your life. And so Paul says it as a closing command. Take stock of your joy. 
The heart is not neutral. You aren't living a life absent joy. You have something you're prizing, something you're treasuring. Now, you may be living in despair because the object of your joy is shaken or the object of your joy is removed, but you aren't living a life apart from a heart latched onto joy. Something has taken the place of treasure in your life. Something has taken the place of joy in your life. And Paul's saying, take an evaluation of your heart. What drives its joy? What drives its affections? And he's saying, reset that. Renew that. Rejoice in the Lord. And so the first of these five commands, rejoice. And then second, and the rest of the commands really start to wrap around unity. And not the kind of unity like happens between countries like a Cold War, where, hey, we're not shooting each other, so we must be at peace. I'm not talking about them too much, so we must be okay. It's talking about, when, when the Bible talks about peace, the Bible is talking about things that were uh, out of sync and not the way they were supposed to be, being made the way they're supposed to be again. The Hebrew word is shalom, it's wholeness. It can be used for health. And so it's, it's out of joint things being brought back together to the way they're supposed to be. And the rest of the text is going to talk about, be talking about how do our relationships go back to the way they're supposed to be? Rich, deep, flourishing, full, life-giving gospel relationships. Because we're fractured and we're factioned and they need to be brought back together. So each of these four commands is going to address that. The first of them being aim for restoration. The word actually means completeness. And so aim for your relationships to be restored. We've all been driving around through, well, not Statesboro because there's not really bridges when everything's flat. But when you're driving around, like, say, Atlanta, they actually have bridges. There's a lot of, you know, rowing topography. You'll occasionally, over near the house I grew up in there, for years there was a sign, bridge out. Well, what does that mean? It means there's a road coming up to a bridge here. And on the other side, there's a road coming up to the bridge there. But what connects those two roads together is missing. And so when Paul says aim for restoration, he's saying there's a believer here and there's a believer here, but something that connects them is missing. Aim to build the bridge back. Aim to restore the gap that has separated the two. And so he's saying aim for restoration. This is the key thing of the whole book. It's the key thing of really both Corinthian books that we have in writing. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, we're factioned off by our leaders. Paul, you're too weak, I'm going to go with these guys. And then they despise each other, you're not rich enough, you're poor, you don't have enough. We're going to have the rich table, we're going to have the cool table, we're going to have the plenty of food table, and then you guys can go sit in the corner if you don't have enough food or drink for the Lord's Supper, or for our, for our fellowship meal before the Supper. So they're factioned by leaders, they're factioned by economics, they're factioned by, by their classes, And Paul's like, the bridge is out. Aim for restoration. Where's the bridge out in your life? Where's the bridge out in your relationships? Is it in your Sunday school class? Is it in your church or in the church you're a part of? Is it in your family? Where is the bridge out? Hear Paul's command. Hear Paul's encouragement. Mend what's broken. Rebuild the bridge. Aim 
And I think that's a good word because you're only one side of the equation. You can only aim for restoration, but you can do everything in your power to restore. And that's Paul's encouragement. Aim for restoration. And then he moves on from aim for restoration. And he says, comfort one another. So this is, again, it's about mending what's broken. You think about this. Paul began the letter, God comforts God is the God of comforts and the Father of all mercy, and he comforts us in every affliction that we may be able to comfort others also with the comfort that we have received from God. And you have seen throughout this book, Paul tested the theory. This is not hypothetical the gospel will comfort you. This is not hypothetical the Father of mercies will be enough mercy for what you're going to face. This is real tried and true. Uh, in the beginning, he's like, we despaired of life itself. We were afflicted but not crushed. Forsaken. Or, or tended to be forsaken but not abandoned. He had two massive lists of suffering, massive lists of shipwrecks and snake bites and danger from rivers and danger from robbers. And people hated me that were part of my countrymen. People hated me that were Gentiles. People hated me in the church. He tested whether or not God's comfort holds. And now he says to the people, God's comfort will hold. Why do, why do they need that? Think about this. Think if you went through a season of your Christian life where you got sucked into the mob and you hated and spit and yelled and talked ugly about fellow believers and you you ran, you know, a faithful minister out of town, you succeeded in your coup and then God convicts you and you repent. Think of the grief if God, by the Holy Spirit, woke you up to the sin that you contributed to to harming another believer or group of believers. You might need a gospel comfort to hold if God really woke your heart up to the evil of what you had done to another believer. And I think that's why Paul is saying it here. Comfort one another. You have slandered the guy that is responsible under God for you coming from death to life. You're going to need some comfort when that happens. You've awoken to repentance. And so you're going to need to comfort one another during this time. And so comfort one another. Agree with one another. Does that mean we should walk in lockstep uniformity? Everybody needs to feel the same way, think the same way, vote the same way, agree the same way? Is that what he's saying? No. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think what he's saying is you followed the show, you followed the flash, you followed your leaders, you, or, or the different leaders, you factioned about everything under the sun, but you have failed to unite in what really matters. Because what unites us is more than what divides us. What unites us is the blood of Jesus. The common blood that courses through all of our spiritual veins. What unites us is that a word has been given from heaven to disclose who God is and what he is like. And what he has accomplished in the world and what he's accomplished in salvation. And that word is to be held in common. We are to agree on what matters. We are to agree on our purpose. We are to have a common heart. And on the stuff that really matters, Jesus and his word and his gospel and his life, that's the stuff that really matters that we must agree on. And you think about it, as you look out in the culture, there's no hope of reconciliation. 
There's no hope of coming together. There's no hope of unity. There is my tribe and your tribe, and we have to hate each other. There's my tribe and your tribe, and, and anything that you guys do, I maximize your fault called slander. And anything my tribe does, I totally explain away called injustice. And we want to be righteous because we're in this group, and they are unrighteous because they're in that group. And we faction off by our economics, even in the church. We faction off by our ethnicities, even in the church. We faction off by our uh, cultural backgrounds, even in the church. Are those unimportant? No, they are very important. But they're the essentials that bind us together to people across the globe and across the thousands of years of the church? No. Agree together on what matters. Agree together on Jesus. Agree together on his gospel that unites us. Agree together on his church. And then fight and live and war in an agreement around the gospel. And then with humility and love, deal with the other stuff, sure. But rooted into the gospel, rooted into Jesus. Agree with one another. And then live in peace. Live in peace. That does not mean stop fighting. Live at peace means to live in shalom. Live in wholeness. Live lives that are woven together richly and flourishing. Live that way. You've tried the other way. Live in peace. And so again, I ask you, where is the bridge out in your life? Maybe for you, you're so far away from the road of relationships, there's no bridge to mend. You've let yourself be distant. You've let yourself be on the fringe. You've let yourself be disconnected from the body of Christ. And you've thought it enough to listen on a podcast. Or you've thought it enough to kind of drop into church and drop out. And you think, that's enough. And it's not. Because this isn't church. Gathered together on a Sunday morning isn't church. You're the church. I'm the church. We're the church. And so when we gather together, the church gathers together, the people of God in relationship to each other are the church. And so when when the Bible says, do not forsake the assemblings of yourselves together, is he talking about this? Sure. But is he only talking about this? No. If you're living a life disconnected from people except for church time on Sundays, you are missing a massive swath of what God intends for Christianity And you're missing a massive swath of what our combined experience of God could be. Because we want to be disconnected. Or we want to be safe. People aren't safe all the time. And so he closes these five commands out in a surprising way. But he closes in the same way the Philippians command to rejoice closes. The God of love and peace will be with you. That's where I get experience from. You will experience the presence of God in special ways when you take seriously your heart's affections and restore them to the Lord by the gospel. When you take seriously the relationship quality and the relationship unity of the church, you will experience the God of love and the God of peace being with you. Now, is God always with us? Yes. Right? But in the Great Commission, he says, I'm with you always. What does he mean? When you are on mission, you will encounter Jesus in an intimacy and a presence that you will not have otherwise. And when he says it here, is God always present in the church? Yes. But as we strive to reset our joy, 
And as we strive to a deeper unity, and as we strive to a deeper relationship experience with each other, there will be a way that God is present that is different and more intimate and special. The God of love, which is nowhere else in the New Testament, will be with you. You experience the love of God in ways you won't experience if the church is unhealthy and factioned. You'll experience peace with God in ways that you would not experience when the church is not at peace. The God of peace and love will be with you. You'll encounter him, experience him in ways differently. Richer, fuller, if that's the, if that's the case. And so what's the Holy Spirit alerting your heart to? What's your part in the church? In the church's fuller experience of God? Is it reset a, a reset joy? What's your part? Is it reset relationships? Is it putting the bridge back in place? Let's look at the second part. Pray for a richer taste of the Trinity's grace and fellowship that you might have more to share. Pray for a richer taste of the Trinity's grace and fellowship that you might have more to share. I think one of the great challenges all of humanity faces, but especially that that we face and always have, is we wear ourselves out to the bone trying to do something to feel valued or important. Don't know how it came up, but we were even talking about this at the Georgia game that we were watching yesterday. That helped my experience today, I'm just telling you. Like, I'll confess, but you know, Georgia Southern fans, we had a good week, didn't we? Jeez, y'all are a tough crowd this morning. I'll say it, go dogs, go eagles. Had a great week in Georgia sports today, we'll take it. But we were even talking about this there. Like, we want to do something to be valid, to be validated, do something to feel valuable, do something so we feel important. And I'm convinced, moms, you're out there living with all this mommy guilt because I want my kids to succeed. I've staked it on, are they behaving well enough? I've staked it on, are they popular enough? I've staked it on, are they good enough at sports? Are they good enough at academics? And I'm wearing myself out and not feeling like I measure up as a mom because they're not quite as put together on Sunday as all these perfect moms who have their kids perfectly dressed every Sunday. And you live in guilt and shame because I'm failing as a mom. I'm not valuable. Maybe you do that at work. You work harder and you become a workaholic. You've got to do more. You've got to do longer. You've got to produce more. Because if you produce enough, you'll be valuable. If you produce enough, you'll be validated. If you produce enough, you'll have made it. And it seeps into the church too. If I do enough at church, if I'm on enough committees, if I serve enough, I'll be valuable. Be validated. And then we live with this low-level shame and this low-level guilt because we know we don't measure up. I'm not a good enough mom. I'm not a good enough dad. I'm not a good enough worker. I'm not successful enough. I'm not a good enough. I could do more at church. I just feel guilty. I should do more. And it's so opposite the gospel. Isn't it? It's so opposite the gospel. See, here's how the gospel works. God declares you something... Before he ever asks you to do anything. God declares you righteous. Before you ever do one act of righteousness. Declares you loved. Before he asks you to live as one who is loved. Declares you adopted. Then go offer the adoption to others. And so 
God declares you something before he calls you to do anything. That's the reversal of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. And then, kind of as a side note to that, what God does to you, he wants to do through you. What God does to you, he wants to do through you. So when he does a work saying, you're my dearly loved child, he's saying, I want you to go love people as your family. And I don't mean like family, like it's a pretend family at the church. I mean, love people as your family. When he says, adopt to go offer adoption. What he does to you, he wants to extend through you. And I think that's what we're seeing in the text is he is going to say this blessing over the people. He wants them to experience the grace of God rich, more richly. And then he's going to have that, I believe, to, to, to ripple through them to others. And so experience the grace of Jesus richer and fuller. And then go offer the grace of Jesus to other people around you richer and fuller. Go experience deeper the love of God. And then go love other people more deeply and richly. Display the love of God. Have a deeper encounter of intimacy, of fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. And then go plunge into intimacy with others. Fellowship with others. Weave your life together with others. And so he closes with this blessing. First, greet each other with a holy kiss. Which would be a very uh, a normal way in that culture to greet people. Um, nothing sexualized about it, obviously. It's a holy kiss. Uh, we had some some friends from from I think it was Iraq, yeah, Iraq. Some Muslim friends, and every time we would go to their house, you know, you got to offer a meal. But every time you go to their house, you'd come and you'd do the kiss on this cheek, kiss on that cheek. It's still very common in a lot of cultures, greeting each other with a kiss. And so, what it was expressing in the church is familial bond. We're family, and we love each other. So, greet each other again, church, with love, with family. And then he closes with this Trinity formula, right? You notice the Trinity there. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And then notice it ends very much like verse 11 ends. We'll be with you all. You'll encounter or you'll experience more of God as you walk out his will together in the gospel. And then as you experience more of his work in your life, grace, love, and fellowship, you are... are, as you do that, as you experience more of his presence, you'll experience more of his, of his gifts, grace, love, and fellowship. And so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, right? So what's, the, what's he saying there? Like the whole work of redemption, by grace alone, God's favor is given to you as a gift that you did not earn. That's grace. Like God is kind towards you. God is good towards you. God has favor towards you. Why? Because you're good enough for it? Or because he, as a gift, gives you his goodness, gives you his kindness, gives you his favor through the work of Jesus Christ. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And what God does to you, he wants to do through you. When at salvation you experience the grace of God, it doesn't stop there. Because grace is also the power that transforms you as well as the power that cleanses you from sin. And so as you experience the grace of God in ongoing ways throughout your Christian life, and you experience more of the grace of God and taste more of the grace of God, you're meant to be a more gracious person. And if you find that you've spent your Christian life 
And at the end of, or, or throughout it, there's not graciousness coming out of your life. There's not increased grace for other people in their failures and grace for other people to help them change and grace for other people um, as a part of mercy and extending help. Then you're missing something about the gospel. You're not encountering the, the blessing here. You're not encountering the grace of the Lord Jesus. Because the more you encounter it, it is a natural, inescapable byproduct of experiencing grace to give grace. Maybe the problem is you're not tasting enough grace to give it. And so I pray for myself and I pray for you what Paul prays for us. Oh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And if you taste the grace of God, you can't help but know as it attaches you to the love of God, the Father. The grace of Jesus that I experience awakens me to the world of God's love that is beyond my ability to quantify and beyond my ability to understand completely. God's love for me is opened up to me as I encounter the grace of Jesus in the gospel. And so a natural byproduct of the extension of grace is the experience of love, the knowing of love, not just in my head, but in my heart. I know the love of God. And since what God does to you, he wants to do through you. The more you know the love of God at salvation and the more you experience the love of God in your Christian life, the more loving as a person you'll become. And if you find throughout your Christian life your love is not growing, you don't love people more than you did a year ago, you don't love people more than you did five years ago, that there's not a taste of love in your life from God and an extension of love out of your life to others, then I pray for you and I pray for me what Paul prays for us. Oh, that the love of God would be with you again. Because what God does to you, he does first. And then he does through you. It's not that we loved him. That he loved us and sent his son. And if we encounter the grace of God and if we encounter the love of God. Or encounter the grace of Christ and the love of God. Then the last byproduct. See how it's building on itself? You experience intimacy with God by the work of the Holy Spirit. Fellowship is not a room back here. That we serve meals in a couple of times a year. Fellowship is when two lives are, it means woven together. And so my life and God's life woven together more deeply, more intimately, more closely. And so I want your life to be woven more together with God by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what God does to you, he wants to do through you. He wants to weave your life together with others. And so the more we encounter intimacy and the more we encounter fellowship, weaving of life together with God, the more he's going to send us to experience that with others. And I think one of the great missing pieces of our Christianity is that fellowship with other people. But by the work of the Trinity, you've been invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. See, God's never been lonely for all of eternity. He never needed you. Y'all okay with that? You're not because it's 12, right? But if it weren't 12, you might be upset with me, right? God has never needed you for company. He has had the Trinity in perfect, happy, undisturbed fellowship, except for at the cross for one moment of time for all of eternity. And he's welcoming you by the work of grace, love, and the Holy Spirit. Come into the fellowship of the Trinity and then go give out the fellowship of the Trinity to others. But that's scary, isn't it? It's a lot easier to have a Bible study. It's a lot easier to be able to craft my image and decide what I show you and decide what I tell you. It's a lot easier to stay a safe distance from people because people can hurt you. 
And I'll just go ahead and give you the end of the story. People will hurt you. They're going to betray you. You're going to have your heart torn up because you're going to open up your life to another person. I wish I had better news. But I do have good news. The one who knows you best with all your sin and all your lust and all your pride and all your sin says, accepted, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're mine. I love you. I love you perfectly. You can't, you can't reveal something to me somewhere down the line that's going to make me change my mind. And so if that's true and the one that matters, the one who ultimately judges everything, who can bring a charge against God's elect, right? And if that's true, then I am able and free because of that work of God to walk in and open my life up in increasing ways to other people, even if it means Judas is on the other end of that. I can still do it because the one that matters and the one that judges and the one that knows has already stamped me righteous, approved, accepted, loved, adopted. Now, not to get something and not to fill up something in my life do I walk to relationships, but because of who God is in my life and the fellowship of the Trinity he's invited me into, I can open up increasing levels of my heart to other people and I can let them see the parts I'm scared to death people seeing there. And so we do that. You know, I'm convinced that's why we keep our Bible study so academic. Facts about God, figures about God, important information about God. And it's great. We should do that. But we shouldn't stop there. And I think that's why we do. We are scared to death to let God really in. He already sees it, by the way. To let God really in to change something that he finds in our hearts. I don't know that we really want it, or maybe we're just scared to death when he gets there, what's going to happen? And I think that's also why we do the same thing in our microgroups and our relationships with others, is we are scared to death for anybody to see past the finely crafted image of our life, what's really in our hearts. I just want to challenge you. Yeah, you may meet Judas along the way, but you'll also meet John. You'll also meet Peter. You'll also meet people that pour life into you that it wouldn't be the same if you didn't have them in your life. And I want to encourage you, because of the grace of the gospel and the acceptance of the gospel, walk towards transparency. Yeah, find trustworthy people, but walk towards transparency. Reveal more and more of your life. And then when you do that, guys, don't give common sense answers. Don't commiserate with them like, oh yeah, we all hate our boss. When someone divulges their heart, speak Jesus back to their heart. The gospel is what we massage into the lives of people who open up their scars, who open up their wounds, who open up their sins, who open up their temptations. What do we meet there? Not rejection, not betrayal, not a, 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 spreading their news around the other, but here's Jesus. Here's his beauty. Here's the contours of the gospel. Here's what he did on your behalf. Here's who he calls you. And we remind each other of Jesus when people, when we open up our hearts to others and others open our hearts to us. Here's who Jesus is and here's what he's done. And it's beautiful. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Encounter it more richly. May the love of God be with you. Oh, encounter it more fully. And may the fellowship of the Trinity be your fellowship with intimacy and fullness. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for us. A few practical things as we close out the section here. Fight for joy in God. Don't let it be optional. Don't let it be okay to go year in and year out absence, a taste of joy in God. 
Fight for joy. Pursue joy. Ask for joy. Search the scriptures for joy. Recount the praises of God, whether you feel it or not, over and over and over to your heart until you taste and see that the Lord is good. That's an experience word. Don't know the Lord is good. Taste it. Taste that he is good. Fight for joy. Get into the word like you mean it. Get into the war like you are going to war with yourself. Get into the word like you desire Jesus more than the deer desires the water. Fight for joy. Kill sin. Would you cut out your eye if it would get rid of your sin? Because that's what Jesus says to do. I had to say this in Sunday school. Don't cut your eyes out. But do you want your sin dead that much? Because until you do, you're just playing around with it. Let's put it this way. I'm just playing around with it. Kill sin. Gaze at Jesus. Fight for a deeper unity and community. That means you need to mend some relationships. That means you need to walk from the outside closer to the inside. That means you need to open your heart up to some people that are trustworthy. It means you need relationships where your life actually weaves together with their life in ways that are uncomfortable and ways that are beyond Sunday. So mend what is broken and then pursue what is rich and full and life-giving community. Fight for more grace and love to be received and given. We just covered that. And then serve and share with others. You know that there are orphans all over this world. And I mean spiritual orphans. I mean people that do not know the love of the Father. But you do. People who are not adopted. But you're adopted. And you know what they need? They need to sit at the table of a family. So that they get to taste what it means to be family with God. You have a table. You have the adoption. Serve with it. But then you also have the message of the God who adopts. Through the work of his son Jesus. And you get to share that. Serve and share with two. Identify two people in your life by prayer. And then you go after them with your service. After them with your table. After them with your love. And after them with your lips. Until they believe. Or reject, it happens. Our lives and our investment in the community of faith have a determining effect. Not the determining effect, that's the gospel. On all of our experience of God. On all of our taste of his grace. So let me challenge you. Seek, pursue, rejoice, unify. Let's pray. Father, in the name of your son Jesus, we ask for what we long for and yet are terrified of. Search us. Try us. Know us. If there be any wicked way in in us, keep us back from innocent faults. Keep us from presumptuous sins. Let us know again we're accepted. Let us know again we're loved. Not for our own self-worth, but so that we can go accept others and love others and extend grace to others and have fellowship with others. That everything you've done in our lives, God, would continually ripple out and display into the lives of others. God, would you do that? Would you do that, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that sin earns us a death. It makes us his enemies. And yet God sent his son into the world for enemies. 
He sent his son into the world for sinners. And he offers grace. He offers love. If you'll turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, he will save you. All who call upon the name of the Lord, he will save you. Is the Holy Spirit doing that work in your life? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you? Is the Holy Spirit showing you the work of Jesus? The grace to forgive. And come, let's pray together or fill out the white sheet in your bulletin and say, I need need to talk to somebody about that. But maybe for us, we've fallen into that rut. Our relationships are frayed, but we just, we haven't gotten, you know, we've just got the rut of letting it fray. We've got broken relationships. We've just let them be broken. Our own spiritual life, we've let it sap and drift and, and, and we've just been in the rut to not do anything about it. Would you come ask for a fresh grace? to cleanse you and a fresh grace to empower you to run the race again? Or maybe for you, you need, God, I need to taste grace again. And you want to pray the grace of Jesus be with me again. God, it's been so long since I've experienced intimacy with you and fellowship with you. I need it again. I just need to know your love for me in Christ Jesus. I believe it with my head, but man, it's been a long time to it since I've encountered it. Come ask for that. Come ask with Paul. Come ask with me. Or do it right where you are. We're going to stand and sing. We're going to invite you to respond how God's leading you in this time.